in the Christian life. So again, just a, a few decades after the ministry of Christ Jesus himself, they're already spiraling downward into these disputes and, and difficulties. And so far from this passage being an aside, which we tend to treat it as, you know, Paul kind of calls time out and just paints, you know, waxes eloquent for a moment on love. Before we, we, we relegate the passage to just, you know, a poem or a, a handy thing to read at weddings, we have to realize that it's an essential component of this larger dialogue that Paul's been having with this church. A church that, again, had quickly moved off of its foundation. And so because of that, then, Paul, in speaking of love, he reminds them and rebukes them in three ways. He reminds them and rebukes them in three ways as it pertains to love. He first says that love is primary. And this is in verses 1 through 3. Love is primary. Secondly, he says, love is only possible through Christ. Verses 4 through 7. Love is only possible through Christ. And then thirdly and finally, love is permanent. And this is verses 8 through 13. Love is is permanent. So let's consider those in turn. The first, love is primary. You'll notice, again, in verses you know, one through three, that Paul is giving these hypothetical situations, if you will. And each hypothetical situation teases out the scenario that the Corinthian church found themselves in. And the scenario they found themselves in, as you know, was focusing and elevating improperly secondary things over and above that which is primary. I'll say it again. They were focusing and improperly elevating secondary things over and above that which is primary. And when you do that, you become, as a church, either ineffective or outright dangerous, or both. And Paul says here, then, in those examples, again, verses 1 through 3, he basically says, look, you can have the gift of eloquence. You can have the eloquence of men and even angels. You could speak in every known tongue, both earthly and divine. You could be a walking human Rosetta Stone. All right? Anybody use that software? I tried, okay? Didn't last long, but you could be a human Rosetta Stone. And again, this was clearly a reference to them being fixated on the gift of speaking in tongues which was a very present gift in the early church as the Holy Spirit made inroads for the very first time in places. But for them, it had become an idol. It had become a good thing that they had made an ultimate thing, which is how we define an idol. One of God's good gifts that they had made an ultimate gift. And so it became to them an idol. And it was an easy idol for the Corinthians because, as we know, they lived in a community that already possessed an unhealthy preoccupation with human speech. They prized it very highly. If you were eloquent, if you could speak in public, if you were a philosopher, if you were someone who was trained in professional rhetoric, then you had a great standing in the Corinthian community. So it wasn't a far leap then for someone to be eloquent and also to have the gift of tongues through the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden that person became a rock star. That person became a celebrity. That person was elevated beyond what was reasonable in that church. 
Paul says, look, you can have all those gifts, but if you're missing love, it doesn't matter. It actually amounts to nothing. In verse 2, he kind of continues the same train of thought, and he says, you can have the gift of prophetic powers, prophetic powers, which again is not like future telling. That's to misunderstand that word in the New Testament. It doesn't mean you have the gift of future telling. It's more along the lines of someone who can teach the word of God, who can speak the word of God, who can speak the truth of God. And so again, Paul says you can have the eloquence of humans and angels, and you can even have that ability to take that eloquence and then use it for teaching and teach God's word with power and with thunder and with authority. You could be a master teacher of the Bible, and again, you could gain for yourself quite a following, especially in a city like Corinth, where they loved traveling speakers. They loved philosophers. You could do all of that. But again, if you're using those secondary gifts, if you're using those things but lacking the primary gift of love, they again, they amount to nothing. If you're using those secondary gifts but with no thought as to who those gifts are actually for, it amounts to nothing. If you're using those secondary gifts with no thought to others but simply as a means to of self-aggrandizement, or as a means to making your own name great, then again, it amounts to nothing. And Paul says so much by giving them that, that, that sort of image. You'd be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He's actually, he's kind of jabbing a little bit. The bronze trade was big in Corinth, Okay a city known for its bronze, renowned for its bronze. Corinthian bronze was actually even prized above gold in some places, okay? Very highly regarded. Paul says you could be a, think of a a brass cymbal right here, okay? You'll be a noisy gong, a brass cymbal. What's he saying? You'll have sound, but no melody. You'll be heard, but it's just noise, okay? Again, if you do not have the primary gift of love underneath whatever gift it is that God has given to you. I may have mentioned this before, I can't recall, but uh, my son Wyatt, as you know, who's almost seven, uh, he used to love following me in the yard as I mowed the grass. And he had his Fisher-Price mower, you know, and I have the real, you know, mower, and he'd follow along in my path, and it was, you know, adorable and cute, the neighbors would come out to see it. You know, this cute, you know, toddler following his dad. And I loved it. I mean, it was a wonderful father-son bonding. It was, a, it was just incredible, you know, made mowing the lawn fun. And he would get out and he would love it. But he eventually discovered that the lawnmower, his lawnmower, didn't have a blade in it. You know, didn't have an actual engine in it. And so he kind of, it kind of burst his bubble a little bit when he realized that he's doing all of this and it doesn't matter. You know, it's not actually cutting a single blade of grass. Now, of course, I didn't care. That's not why we were doing it. It was the bonding. But he kind of got wise to that, and now he doesn't mow the lawn anymore. Okay? It feels sort of useless to him. Now, he will when he's older, when I trust him with a gas mower, right? But for now, he doesn't mow the lawn anymore. But again, think of that image for Paul here. You can have the framework. You can have the wheels. You can have all that. But if you're missing the engine, if you're missing the blade, 
that mower will not cut. It doesn't matter. Paul says again, you can have the framework of prophecy, the framework of speaking in tongues, the wheels of every imaginable spiritual gift, but if you're missing the engine of love underneath it, then again, it amounts to nothing. It'll always fall short. It is not actually edifying for Christ's church. So the question then is, well, where does this engine of love come from? If love is primary, if love is that engine, well, where does it come from? And how can it even be possible? Because as you continue to read in verses 4 through 7, Paul begins to describe this engine of love. He begins to describe this primary function of love. And if you notice, though, the descriptors he gives of love are quite daunting. Patience, kindness, never envious, never boastful, not arrogant, not rude, never insisting on its own way, not irritable, not resentful, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's it. Simple. Simple. Okay? So where does that come from? Where does that kind of love come from? April, my wife, once uh, called me out because I was watching a basketball game on TV. It was late at night, and there was a player on the, on the court who I don't care for too much, all right? And I called him out as lazy. I said, look at that guy. He's lazy. He's lazy. Mindful, I'm on the couch late at night, <laughs> eating a bowl of ice cream, okay? And calling out a world-class, like, top 1% of the 1%, top of his profession, individual, <laughs> as lazy. It's preposterous, right? If you ever step on a basketball court, you know, a real one, you know, in an arena, or go to a major league baseball field, it's in that moment you realize, my goodness, the gap, the gap between my skills and, and their skills is it's infinite. I mean, that's a, it's a huge gap, right? Well, so Two, can we feel that in this text? How do we take Paul's reminder seriously when he goes to describe what this love actually looks like? Is not the gap between our ability and what he now describes, the ideal painted here, isn't it too big? Isn't that gap just unbreachable? And of course, the answer, the answer on our own is yes. You're right. It is too large of a gap. Attempting to love like this in our own strength is impossible. It's impossible. It's an unattainable ideal. And now you're seeing, again, why Christ had to come. This is why Jesus had to come. He had to come and do for us what we can never do for ourselves. To love us, to love the world with a perfection that we are incapable of. And he directed that perfect love towards us, imperfect, incapable, inconsistent sinners. And as we know, that love, it took the form of him living that perfect life, which we talked about earlier in the confession. Dying the atoning death for us and then rising for our justification, so that then, all who trust in that love, all who trust in the love of Christ alone, we too then are raised to new life. 
We are given new hearts. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. So that now, as reborn and and regenerated children of God, redeemed, we're able now to slowly love in a manner that reflects our understanding that he first loved us. And he did so perfectly. And he also loved us like that when we were unlovable, when we were his enemies, when we were undeserving of that love. So then take that approach to this text now and ask yourself, how can a loving patience and kindness, look at verse 4, a loving patience and kindness start to manifest in our lives? How does that happen? Well, only when we realize and consider the patience that God has shown us in Christ. How can you be patient to your neighbor, to your family member, to your annoying sibling, to your coworker, whoever it might be? Again, when you realize that God was patient with you, infinitely patient with you in the person of Christ. That it was the kindness of God, we're told in Scripture, that leads us to repentance, that leads us to faith. How can a loving contentment, look at it again at the end of verse 4, don't be envious, okay? What's the opposite of envy? Well, you're content with your life, all right? How can a loving contentment and, and a humility or a, a refusal to boast start to manifest itself in our lives? Again, only when we consider that in Christ we have everything we could ever want, that in the gospel we have everything we could ever need, we don't need to be envious of our neighbor driving that car, our coworker with the bigger bank portfolio, whatever it might be. Are we human still? Sure. Do we want nice things? Sure. But again, where does that lack of, where does you know, contentment come from and, and a refusal to boast, especially in, in materialistic South Florida? My goodness, right? How do you not boast down here in South Florida? So materialistic. All of us are caught in that, in that spiral, Right? Well, again, by realizing in the gospel, in the gospel, we have everything we could ever want. We have an inheritance that will not spoil or fade. We have fellowship with the the triune God. How can we possibly not be arrogant or rude when we disagree with people or they offend us? Again, when realizing that we were once naturally enemies of God. Enemies of God. So far beneath his reach, or deserving his reach, so far beneath deserving his friendship and mercy, and yet he loved us even to the expense of his own life. Look at one more. Look at, look at verse 6. It says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is the ESV translation, but other Bibles might say it, it keeps no record of wrong. It keeps no record of wrong. And that's probably a more accurate rendering of it. Love keeps no record of wrong. How do you do that in your own life? How do you not become someone who is always tallying up someone else's mistakes? Keeping score on what that person said to you, the look they gave to you, how they wronged you keeping a neat and tidy ledger of everyone else's shortcomings, we're all so good at that. So good at that. Experts at that. How do we not become those kind of people that keeps no record of wrong, no record of offense? 
again by realizing, what did God do in Christ Jesus? He did not deal with us according to what our sins deserve, but he took the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he nailed it to the cross of Christ so that we can be forgiven, so that God is no longer keeping score. A great author once said that the bookkeeping department, the accounting department in heaven was closed forever when Christ hung on the cross. God no longer keeps a record of our wrongs, again, because of what Christ has done. And so you see here Paul telling us that love is primary. Love is only possible through Christ. And we must get that second point. That though love is primary, it's not easy. And we should be driven to a self-awareness to recognize we can't do it on our own. And so the source of that love can't come from within. It has to be gifted supernaturally. Only by faith. Only through the work of Christ. So love is possible only through Christ. And then thirdly, finally, love is permanent. This is in verses 8 through 13. Love is permanent. You see, Paul here, he doesn't just advocate for love because it's convenient. And he doesn't just advocate for love because it would save him, you know, the trouble of having to write future letters. <laughs> They'd all get along. He also advocates for love because he actually has the best interest of his audience in mind. Think for a second. If you were someone in Corinth, you know, just wishing you had the gift of prophecy, or you were someone in Corinth just wishing you had the gift of tongues, just wishing you had the gift of knowledge. You know, Paul's already done diligence to temper those things and to, to properly relegate those things to their rightful place. And he's already, last chapter, validated that every person is valued. Every person, regardless of gift, matters. But beyond that here, he tells us that our highest and most noble aim as a Christian, is to be a person of gospel-driven love. But then why is the question? Because he actually tells us, in the end, that's all that's going to matter. In the end, that's all that remains. You know, Paul here is like a good investment strategist. If you're going to invest your time somewhere, your effort somewhere, your money somewhere, put it in something that will last, that has return. It's a crass example, but this is Paul's approach here. That in the end, prophecy is going to pass away. Why? Because when we're in heaven face to face with God himself, we no longer need God's word to be spoken. Tongue speaking will pass away. Why? Because we'll one day be with God face to face. We no longer need truths to be mediated differently. Wisdom and knowledge will be redundant in heaven because we'll see God face to face and we will know fully, what does Paul say, just like we're fully known. But what will remain is love. And so Paul here then gives that parental example where he says, when I was a child, I thought one way, I reasoned one way, but when you become a man, you grow up and you do things differently. And again, think about that as a parent. As a parent. I struggle with this. You hear me use countless examples about my children and our love for sports. So I go out of my way sometimes to teach Wyatt and Channing, right? How to hit a baseball, how to kick a soccer ball, how to shoot a basketball, how to hit a tennis ball. You know, all these things. Golf lessons. I love it all. I love all sports. Equal opportunity lender, right? Love sports, right? 
But I have to check myself because while those are good things to teach my children, they can never be a substitute for teaching them the things that really matter, such as what? How to treat other people, how to talk to their mother, how to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And this is Paul's example here. He's saying, look, as your spiritual parent to the Corinthian church, don't worry about those other gifts. Prophecy, it's like hitting a baseball. It's a good thing, it's not gonna last. Speaking in tongues, it's like shooting a basketball. It's a good thing, it's not gonna last. Paul says, again, as a parental figure to the Corinthians, focus on that which matters, which will last for eternity, which is being a person of Christ-like love. And then finally, what's the practical payoff of that? Well, again, think about your own life. Think about your own interactions in the world. Very few people are one to Christ because of your prophetic ability. Very few people are one to Christ because of your ability to speak in tongues or not. But how are people one to Christ? Through your love for them. When they see that otherworldly love, that supernatural love that just makes you different, that can't be explained. So again, Paul in Corinth said, if you're going to be a kind of church, be that kind of church. Be a church that's so known for its love, there's no other explanation for it other than the supernatural working of Christ Jesus. And so too here us at Lake Osborne. We're a church with many gifts, with a rich history, diverse group here that is hardwired and gifted in many different ways. But above and beyond it all, may we be a church that's known for our love, for each other, the world, and for Christ Jesus, who though we were enemies of God, loved us at the cost of his own life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for that unconditional love you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No greater picture of love have we ever known than that undeserving Son of God hanging there in our place, dying in our place, but rising for us that we could be new people, new creations, given a new heart, now capable of loving a world that so desperately needs it. So God, we do pray that you would empower us through your Spirit, that we would leave here not just having been hearers of your word, but doers, loving the unlovable, loving those, Lord, in the same manner in which you have loved us. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.